coronavirus fears in Congress. And we're going to have more. If, you, if you're scared about this one, wait until the next one. President Trump claims two U.S. Supreme Court justices are biased against him. But can he do anything about it? To say it publicly gives the impression that Supreme Court justices are politicians in black robes. Now, some of them may be, but that's not our history, and it's not their role. Super Tuesday could clear up the state of the Democratic race, or not. None of us are even considering the fact that he doesn't have to be someone who's running already. And President Trump says he just wants an opponent. And he's got a great story to tell about his long list of accomplishments. With Chad Pergram and Rachel Sutherland, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. It's not a question of if, but when. That's the assessment of public health officials warning about the coronavirus in the United States. So far, the number of cases in the U.S. is in the dozens. Most connected to travel to parts of the world hit much harder with the strain officially known as COVID-19. No single topic has dominated official Washington more this week than the coronavirus. Top government scientists and doctors have been briefing lawmakers daily. President Trump gave a rare news conference from the White House briefing room on the crisis. We're very, very very ready for this, for anything, whether it's going to be a uh, breakout of larger proportions or whether or not we're, uh, you know, we're at that very low level. And uh, we want to keep it that way. Congress is expected to authorize billions of dollars next week for emergency funding to help provide resources like testing kits, masks, and facilities to quarantine potentially infected patients. And there's plenty of back and forth here about the administration's response, the urgency, the follow through. I spent some time with two members of the House with specific experience in infectious disease. Florida Democrat Donna Shalala is serving her first term in the House, but for all eight years of the Clinton administration, she was Health and Human Services Secretary. And we're going to have more. If, you'd, if you're scared about this one, wait until the next one. That's why we need infrastructure. She's talking about public health infrastructure around the country to more rapidly address an epidemic. But I also asked Shalala about that tough needle government must thread to inform the public, but not panic the public. They've got to speak with one voice, and it cannot be in a political appointee. It has to be a scientist. There was a Shalala rule while I was secretary that no political appointee talked about um, any kind of vaccines or anything else. Um, That it was always a doctor, a scientist, physician. And I made them wear their white coats because I wanted people reassured that the people that were giving them the information about an outbreak were people that could be trusted. This is all about trust. And, and frankly, I never had a press conference at the White House because that politicized what was a complex issue. Texas Republican Michael Burgess has been in the House since 2003, but he is a medical doctor and often a voice in public health care debates. For the most part, he says he's satisfied with the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus. For crying out loud, you have every public health authority and official standing behind him at the press conference, I think that says something in and of itself. Uh, And my part, I was able to watch. The president allowed other people to participate in the discussion. So I, I, I disagree that the president was dismissive of this as an issue. And I will tell you, my own experience, this with this illness, 
Uh, you recall at the end of January, they did put a travel restriction out. Travel flights to and from China would not be happening anymore. Uh, earlier that week, as we got briefings from the public health officials, not from the administration officials, it seemed to be a little more relaxed than I was comfortable with. It's like, well, we'll do contact tracing and quarantine. We, we know how to contain this. And I'm thinking, well, there are flights landing all day long that are come bringing people in. We need to do something about that. I voiced that concern in that all-member briefing at the end of January. And I don't, can't say that I was the one who was responsible for the thought, but the next day, Secretary Azar made that rather dramatic announcement. For the first time in 50 years, they were imposing a quarantine and restricting travel. I actually asked for that, begged for that. When Liberia was was percolating over on the western coast of Africa, I was concerned when Zika virus posed, I thought, a threat to our athletes going down to the Olympics. I never could get the Obama administration interested in any type of travel advisory or restriction. So I give the administration a great deal of credit. I think we got the additional space this last four weeks because of their activity at the end of January. Now, the critical thing is you know you're not going to stop it forever. What are you going to do? How are you going to manage what happens next? How are you going to take advantage of the pause that you got? And that's then the the question that's being answered now. Has that time been utilized wisely? If we can get testing in the hands of people this weekend or early next week, I, I would say satisfactory. I would point out we've moved from a situation of containment, which is where we were in January, to today, containment and mitigation. So when you say that, we're past the point where this isn't going to have a larger scale impact in the United States. No, I I wouldn't say that at all. But I'd say a month ago, containment was, I thought, a wise strategy. Containment is still going on today. I think that's important. But you also recognize with any infectious disease... Um, and particularly this one, with that long latency period before someone has symptoms and can infect someone else, there are going to be cases in this country, and I think that's largely what the public health people have been trying to convey. If you in, if you see the headline that there's a new case in this country, it doesn't mean a failure of everything. It's, it's actually predictable. But we have moved from containment to containment plus mitigation. I mean, and my, in my opinion, mitigation means let's get some test testing of uh, uh, gets out there on the front lines of this. That, of course, is just part of the response expected from Congress, at least when you talk about funding. A $2.5 billion funding request from the White House was quickly dismissed by both Republicans and Democrats as not enough. It now appears the package will total $7 billion or more. My colleague Chad Pergram, a congressional correspondent for Fox News, has been covering that angle all week. You know what I find that's so fascinating about this? I spoke with Richard Shelby who is the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, early in the week. And he said, you know, you don't want to underspend. And I also asked him, I said, you know, it's easier to pass all of this in one fell swoop than come back to the well two, three, four times, even if you spend less money. It's easier to do it once. And when I was speaking to people with the administration, you know what they said to me? They said, well, quote, big spenders like Richard Shelby, close quote. They were mad about it. And, 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 I, and, I think, and I think what was going on there when I've talked to other sources is that they didn't really know where the president was going to land on this. So everybody retreated to their usual corners, corners even if they were attacking – these are Republicans at the White House – attacking the Republican chairman of the Appropriations Committee. Well, President Trump made it a lot easier on big spenders like Richard Shelby when he had that news conference this week and said, listen, 
if Congress wants to spend more money, let them spend more money. That's usually not our experience with Congress. Well, again, but also let's wait and see what the bill is. You know, yeah. we've also had th- have t- had times around here where there has been an agreement or a perceived agreement, and then the president has either vetoed a bill or threatened to veto a bill or, or held out. They've been down that road, as far as I can tell, three different times during this administration. And I mean, you, I mean, it would be hard to imagine that during a public health crisis. But uh, again, that's where maybe some people say maybe, maybe it's not seven billion. You know, it's it's more. Well, and knows? certainly, you know, you don't want to talk about something like coronavirus, which is a very serious matter in the issue of, of politics. But here we are in the third floor of the United States Capitol, and it's hard to separate politics from anything, at least in in the context of this building. So, what are the politics of this? I mean, the, the, I, I guess the sense I got from Republicans is they were concerned that there was a perception that this wasn't taken seriously enough. Right, right. And you had Democrats by the same token, you know, criticizing the administration for not being on point, not being ready for this. Uh, The problem that both Republicans and Democrats have is that sometimes when you talk to the Trump administration or, or Trump administration officials, is that, you know, they don't handle everything on the level. And so there's a credibility question there. And I think even, you know, some Republicans would concede that point. So you don't really know. So, you know, it's been unique to watch Republicans kind of turn this back around on Democrats and say, well, you're politicizing this. How dare you? You know, this is a serious problem. When some of them had no problem whatsoever criticizing President Obama on various issues. Well, on Ebola. Ebola, absolutely. So, you know, it depends when the shoe is on the other foot. But the problem is that Republicans feel that there is a vulnerability to the president with this, especially when he talks all the time about the stock market. Right. And there have been significant plunges and shocks on Wall Street. The other issue here, you know, obviously in an election year, you know, as I always say, you know, Harold McMillan, the former British prime minister, talked about events. Yes. So we have an event here. This could, could really shape the presidential uh, election. And I did ask Steny Hoyer, the House majority leader, I said, is there a concern that Democrats might be, quote, reveling in, in, in kind of the problems that are besetting uh, the, the Republican administration here. And he said, no, absolutely not. We're not doing that. But again, some of that is up to the eye of the beholder. You know, I, I, it's not reveling, but you have heard Democrats use this as an opportunity to talk about the broader health care policy, that there are patients that are being treated for coronavirus who have what are being described as junk insurance plans that are now allowed by the Trump administration that may not cover the exorbitant cost of being quarantined for two or three weeks. And this is what happened with President George W. Bush when there was a lot of support for the Gulf War. Now, of course, we're not going to go into a conversation here about Katrina. That that was part and parcel of this and how the administration handled Katrina. What I think might be a more instructive uh, model is what happened in 2008 with the financial crisis. And Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, called up Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, and had not heard from him in a few days. And we found out later that the reason is that the administration didn't want members of Congress to know how bad it was with AIG and, and, and Barry Stearns and Merrill Lynch and went on and on and on, you know, Fannie and Freddie. So, you know, there is a tendency of governments and administrations, you know, to sometimes gild the lily, not be as truthful, even with members of Congress. Uh, you know, and the other issue here is when you don't know how the president is going to respond. We just had a big budget the other day that they rolled out where they said we're going to have we're going to you know eliminate all deficits. Three percent growth for the next 15 years. 
well, if you have the market continuing to do this over the next few weeks, you ain't going to have no 3% growth. Well, not only that, but Democrats are also pointing out that there were cuts in public health programs in that budget request. Right. And, and, and again, so again, it, budgets don't become law. And, and we've talked about that. But the speaker likes to talk about how they are a statement of value. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Democrat running, maybe long after the coronavirus passes, we can all hope that this is not a long term effect, that, it, that the politics could linger for some time when you talk about recent examples of why health policy in this country matters. And it's one thing when, you know, you have issues where people say, okay, the administration is being inconsistent when you're dealing with Jamal Khashoggi Mm -hmm. or being inconsistent dealing with NATO or even trade policy. Sometimes those things don't affect people back home. Trade policy, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Khashoggi, probably Probably not. not. But if you have a massive health crisis that could affect, you know, 326 million Americans, or at least the threat to do so, that's a problem. And that's the point I was driving home about the Bush administration, is that, you know, they put out a big mission accomplished banner just a couple of months after the war in Iraq started. And we had been at it in Afghanistan for a couple of years prior to that, after 9-11. And this really started to calcify the administration. And if you have, you know, the president who has suggested that this might go away by springtime. Weather gets warm. It mysteriously goes away, he says, Uh, you know, at his press conference indicating that he was not familiar with the uh, rates of flu death, you know, which would shock some. You might remember this this president also a couple of years ago when they were trying, trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, The problem was that he said, quote, who knew that health care could be this complicated? Well, everybody on Capitol Hill knew because we've all covered it for years. And the mem- and there's a reason why the Democrats practically went to hell and back to pass Obamacare and why the Republicans now 10, 11 years down the road still talk about it and can't undo it. So, so this is a complicated issue. Have a great Super Tuesday, Chad. We will uh, talk next week. And I'm not going to shake your hand. President Trump lashed out at two liberal Supreme Court justices this week, saying he wants them to step back from cases involving his administration. I'm Rachel Sutherland. I just don't know how they cannot recuse themselves for anything having to do with Trump or Trump-related. The president, while in India, talking about Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor, who wrote a dissenting opinion on a decision to uphold the White House's plan to deny green cards to immigrants expected to rely on social programs, such as Medicaid and food stamps. Justice Sotomayor wrote the Trump administration is turning to the high court too often to decide cases that aren't true emergencies. President Trump's displeasure with the outspoken Justice Ginsburg goes back to before he was elected, when she called the then-candidate a faker and said she could not imagine a world with him as president. She later apologized for the remarks, but they appear to still sting. She went wild during the campaign when I was running. I don't know who she was for. Perhaps she was for Hillary Clinton, if you can believe it. But uh, she said some things that were obviously very inappropriate. There's been no comment from the liberal justices or from Chief Justice John Roberts, who butted heads with the president a couple of years ago, criticizing him for calling a federal judge an Obama judge. He said at the time, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges.
Another case on immigration could be winding its way to the high court after an appeals panel ruled the Trump administration can withhold millions of dollars in federal enforcement grants to so-called sanctuary states and cities. New York City and seven states, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Washington, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Virginia are planning to appeal. The Justice Department hailed the decision as a victory, saying it acknowledges that the attorney general can hold back federal money to local governments that are bucking federal policies. Fox News senior judicial analyst Judge Andrew Napolitano joins us. There is very little uh, historical record of this happening in the past. I mean, FDR famously railed against uh, traditionalists and conservatives, as he perceived them, uh, on the court who uh, kept invalidating uh, legislation associated with the New Deal. Eventually, after he threatened to pack the court, there were some resignations, and he got to appoint his own people. Uh, and the court ratified uh, his new version of how the federal government should address economic problems. But in terms of uh, personally attacking justices, because they don't like him personally, mm-hmm. there really is no uh, record of that. There's no way that a litigant, whether it's the president of the United States or anybody else, can force a justice to recuse her or himself from a case. And there's no way that the balance of the court can do so. So as an example, in the Roger Stone case, Stone asked his trial judge to get off the case. She declined. Stone can appeal that decision to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, and they can order her off the case. If, however, a justice were requested to remove her or himself from a Supreme Court uh, matter and declined, there is no provision whatsoever for a litigant to ask the other eight to remove that justice. Why is it that the president singled out uh, Justices Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor and and not the, the other liberal justices? Justice Ginsburg famously said during the campaign that Donald Trump, and I'm paraphrasing, was unqualified to be president. If he was elected, she was going to move to Canada. I remember that. Justice Sotomayor recently, um, in a dissent on an immigration matter, uh, uttered a very, in my view, legitimate complaint, but then went a little bit too far. The legitimacy of, of her complaint was the Trump administration is misusing the emergency doctrine. I can explain that for you in a moment. And my colleagues, uh, particularly the Republican-appointed ones, are uh, accepting this misuse of the emergency doctrine. So the emergency doctrine, which means that someone's life, liberty, or property is about to be destroyed immediately and irreparably, bypasses all the traditional routes. It bypasses a trial in the district court. It bypasses the appellate courts altogether and gets immediately to the Supreme Court. The issue in this case was whether the Trump administration could apply a means test, a financial means test to immigrants. These are legal immigrants who have otherwise properly been admitted to the United States. Can the Trump administration refuse to admit them because as soon as they get here, they're going to need the country's social net? In other words, do they not have enough assets and income to support uh, themselves? In my view, Justice Sotomayor is correct that it's not an emergency and it should have been tried at the district level and heard at the circuit level and then made its way to the Supreme Court. I think she went too far when she publicly chastised the Republican-appointed judges. If she feels that way, she should say it in their conference, where there's only nine of them in the room. The clerks aren't even in there. But to say it publicly 
gives the impression that Supreme Court justices are politicians in black robes. Now, some of them may be, but that's not our history, and it's not their role uh, in, in our government. Right, Judge. So she was saying that the that the Trump administration is basically moving to the high court too quickly and too often. Let's turn now to another case that was decided this week and that the administration can withhold millions of dollars from law enforcement agencies in states and cities that don't cooperate with immigration authorities, the so-called uh, sanctuary cities. And these uh, grants, I guess it's called the Burn Grant Program, help states uh, do reentry for offenders, drug treatment. This was a United States Court of Appeals for Second Circuit in Manhattan, but it's expected to go uh, to the Supreme Court, correct? Well, it needs to go to the Supreme Court because four other circuit courts of appeals have gone the other way. So the argument here is, uh, you know, the federal government, uh, I've been arguing for years, bribes the states by giving them cash. And in return for the cash, there are strings attached. So the law is, if you're going to attach the strings, like we'll give you $100 million to repave the federal highways in your state, but in return, you have to lower the speed limit to 55 miles an hour. This is a program that existed in the in the 80s. Or yeah, like the seatbelt law wasn't that also based on on grants? Yes. So when the government does that and is challenged, South Carolina or South Dakota famously challenged the the law that I just suggested to you about repaving federal highways. The Supreme Court said. You don't have to take the money, but if you take the money, you have to accept the strings. But the strings have to be there at the beginning. Now, that's the key in this case. That's why the other four circuits went the other way, because the Trump administration is imposing conditions on the receipt of these funds, which were not part of the legislation and which did not exist when the funds were initially offered. So the Supreme Court has made it very clear you can't uh, afterwards impose the conditions they have to be there from the beginning so the state knows what they're getting involved in. The Second Circuit didn't see it this way. I don't know which way the Supreme Court is going to go if it's consistent with that 1986 South Dakota case, which is called South Dakota versus Dole. Elizabeth Dole was the uh, Secretary of Transportation in the Reagan administration. If, if the Supreme Court is consistent with its prior decisions in this area, it will overrule Second Circuit opinion, which will be a defeat uh, for the Trump administration. On the other hand, getting back to where we started this conversation, if Justice Sotomayor is right and the Republican nominees are really shills for the Trump administration, I don't believe that for a minute, but if that is true, well, then they're going to back up the Second Circuit. Either way, I don't think this is going to be this term in the Supreme Court. I think this is this is all going to be in abeyance until after Election Day. Let's talk about the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, that protects the uh, uh, people who were brought here illegally as children. We're expecting a decision from the Supreme Court in June. That will be a bit of a taste for how the justices might rule on this case when it when it comes to these grants and the fight there. It, it might. It, it might. I mean, this is a uh, long-simmering uh, dispute in the federal government. I mean, President Obama asked the Congress to make DACA the law of the land, and Congress express, expressly refused. Now, it was a Republican Congress, but it's the Congress, and they refused. He then enacted DACA himself and basically said, 
you know, if you were brought here as a child and you're fully Americanized, if you graduated from high school, if you have a job, if you haven't committed a crime, if you have a Social Security number, if you pay taxes, if you obey the law, uh, we're not going to deport you. We're going to let you stay. Um, that, of course, was challenged in the Trump administration by saying the president can't write the laws. Uh, and the lower courts have agreed uh, with uh, the Trump administration on this. Now, that doesn't mean that if the lower courts are upheld and DACA is invalidated, that the president of the United States is going to deport between 750 and 800,000 young people who are fully Americanized. But it will give him the leverage that he likes to negotiate with Congress on a complete overhaul of the immigration laws in the United States. Interesting stuff. Judge Napolitano, thanks for joining us. Anytime, Rachel. All the best. Next week is so important in politics, it's designated super. It may not come with a trophy like the bowl or the ability to leap a tall building like the man, but Super Tuesday will award more than a third of the delegates a Democrat needs to be nominated this summer. Fourteen states in one U.S. territory, high American Samoa, plus Democrats living abroad, all hold their nominating contest on March 3rd. On that list, big delegate-rich states like Texas and California. Now, this weekend, of course, is the South Carolina primary, and depending on when you're listening, Results could be in, though the expectation as we talk on Friday afternoon is a strong finish for former Vice President Joe Biden. So given its super status, we wanted to dedicate the entire half of From Washington to next week's primaries. First, with Democratic strategist and Fox News contributor Jessica Tarlov, and then the co-chair of the Republican National Committee, Tommy Hicks Jr. But we start on the Democratic side of the slate with Jessica. Is this going to be clarifying for Democrats? Is this going to be chaotic for the Democratic field? I feel like it's going to be both. Uh, We haven't had actually anything happen uh, in either direction, with the exception of what will potentially happen um, with Joe Biden in South Carolina. Um, It really depends, I think, on California and whether people get over the 15 percent threshold. It looks like a Bernie Sanders win. Um, But if Joe Biden doesn't pick up any delegates there, it could be very complicated uh, narrative coming out of Super Tuesday, but things are actually looking up for him in a number of the other states, specifically in the South. So I'm optimistic that we will still have a progressive frontrunner and a moderate frontrunner narrative, uh, but it will be chaotic because that's what Bernie folks like. And that's just the way that it is. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you talk about sort of this this moderate frontrunner and, and a progressive frontrunner, and I think that's what mm-hmm. we've all sort of been Look, look, waiting to find out wh- wh- who's going to take the mantle. I think it's pretty clear at this point Bernie Sanders is in good position to be that progressive frontrunner, yeah. unless it's just an extraordinarily monumental night for maybe an Elizabeth Warren. But if you're Joe Biden, if you're Michael Bloomberg, if you're Pete Buttigieg, if you're Amy Klobuchar, um, you're all kind of like looking for that 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 place, aren't you? Yeah, 100%. I I happen to be supportive of the idea that all the other moderates who are not Joe Biden and Bloomberg who will just never drop out, um, obviously doesn't need to on a cash basis and has a very particular theory of the case, should actually get out of the race. Because what you're seeing and have from Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada is 
Democrats who don't want Bernie Sanders, which is the bulk of us, right? So Bernie Sanders is in around 27, 28%, not even crossing that 30% threshold. Um, But everybody else is kind of jockeying around trying to figure out who they think is the most electable. So some days it's Pete Buttigieg, some days it's Amy Klobuchar, some days it's Joe Biden. And if we're distracted on the right side of the equation, not like the right being right, but the more conservative side, I would say, of the Democratic base, then everyone is sapping everyone else's support and we're not going to be able to have a consensus moderate front runner candidate. I think that is Joe Biden. Just if you look at the coalition uh, of support that exists amongst white working class and huge African-American base um, and pretty good Latino support, though, Bernie is leading in that category. Um, But that's absolutely what's going on right now. And we still just have too many candidates. And with all this talk now about what's going to happen at a contested convention and Bernie and his folks wanting to go back actually on the rules that he demanded from the Unity, Unity Commission after 2016 about superdelegates, you're going to have a very, very messy floor fight. We heard from Speaker Pelosi this week, and, and she's obviously faced a lot of questions about Bernie Sanders, about right. electability, uh, down ballot, of, of trying to, to retain the, the House majority in, in some of these fairly conservative districts that they were able to flip uh, two years ago. Uh, but she said, listen, unity, unity, unity is, is the word she kept repeating usually in, in right. three times. Uh, yeah, you, usually three <laughs> times at, at, at a go. Um, yeah. Is she right? Will there She's be right unity in the, it, for, for, the, for no. the nominee? No, absolutely not. I, I don't believe that. I mean, just looking at how bad it was in 2016, um, and I believe it to be worse because now we have two billionaires in the race, which is kind of, you know, implicit persona non grata on the left. Um, and Bloomberg will definitely be around until the end of all of this. I assume Tom Steyer will have dropped out by then. Um, and the level of vitriol that Bernie supporters have about what happened or allegedly happened to them in 2016, I don't see them going quietly if it's anyone but Bernie. And then you have a lot of disaffected, more establishment Democrats who, and I'm not one of them, I will vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is. But there are a lot of Hillary supporters and current Biden supporters, people who are Kamala Harris supporters, who have no interest in voting for Bernie Sanders, who think that he's extremely disruptive to the party, who's not even a member of our party, um, and don't necessarily think that he's better for Trump or that they have to send a message to the progressive left that they can't be bullied into this. So you have a really strong division there. Now, I'm hopeful that it all works out and we have enough voters in whatever coalition form to get this together. But if you come out of the convention and you have Bernie Sanders as a nominee, you risk alienating some establishment Democrats, but most of all African-American voters. And then if you have someone like Mike Bloomberg as the nominee, you might get African-American voters, but lose out on white progressive lefties that are Bernie people that are not going to turn around having spent years and years railing against the billionaire class to say, oh, I'm going to vote for the billionaire, especially the one that oversaw, you know, stop and frisk and has all these outstanding NDAs with women who work for Bloomberg LP is very complicated. There was a really interesting piece. So I'm a big Sherrod Brown fan and have thought since the beginning that if he had gotten in, he would have been a great unity candidate and you know satisfied that establishment side. And he has the economic populism going as well. Um, But it was talking about that he had said that he wouldn't 
necessarily, you know, snub his nose at walking out of the convention as the nominee. And I thought that was really interesting because none of us are even considering the fact that it doesn't have to be someone who's running already if we go to a convention. Well, I guess if it's a con- if it's a contested convention, all bets are off. Exactly. And then you're just looking around the country, right, and saying, okay, we got nothing at this point, right? We didn't have someone who got a majority. We could have, you know, a couple pluralities even. I mean, there's a good argument to be made that Biden and Bernie could come in a very similar position, right, with no one with an overwhelming mm-hmm. mandate. And then we look around and say, okay, who's best to represent us is in the way that this race stands right now? Because we go to Milwaukee in July to nominate someone. That's a long time away. We have no idea what's going to happen with Corona. We have no idea what's going on in the economy. We have no idea what's going on in the national security front. And people could be looking at someone like a Sherrod Brown um, or like a Mitch Landrew who was considering getting into this race. I, I think that aspect is fascinating. Let me finish with this, because some of what you've talked about with concerns that, that uh, Democrats like yourself have with, with Bernie Sanders sound very similar to what I heard about then-candidate Trump from prominent establishment Republicans uh, in 2015 right. and 2016. You know, I heard from from prominent members of the Republican Party who openly warned that it would be the end of the party as they know it if Trump won the nomination. They are now his biggest supporters. I guess my question is, does it really take that much time for somebody like Bernie Sanders, a disruptor in the way that, that President Trump was a disruptor, to bring the party with them? Well, I think both of those things are true. I think that the Republican Party doesn't exist as we knew it. It's a new mutation that is Donald Trump's party. And folks like Jeff Flake um, and Bob Corker have talked about that, right? That this isn't a Republican Party. Right. I mean, I think that the warning was more the, the warning was more uh, like electoral viability. Me? Right. Oh, right. No. So I'm not as concerned about that. I, I fear Bernie Sanders more for down ballot than I do necessarily for top of the ticket. I mean, listen, there's over a 50% chance that Donald Trump wins re-election. It's very hard to unseat a sitting president, especially with good economic numbers. So instead of going into 2020 like I did into 2016, being super optimistic, I'd rather be pleasantly surprised on election night than totally deflated and destroyed. So I think there is a path for Bernie Sanders. And I think that We'll have to see how the next few months play out. But I, I totally understand the comparison. But I'm not sure that when you look at Bernie's philosophies and how popular, in theory, I guess, a Medicare for all is or relieving student debt or the way that he talks about the justice system, that he is as different to mainstream Democrats as Donald Trump was to mainstream Republicans. All right, we will leave it there, and we'll, I'm sure, chat uh, next week once we uh, see where yeah. uh, where we are with this chaos. <laughs> it's Very been fun exciting. to watch this with you, Jessica. We'll uh, we'll stay in touch. President Trump will likely be paying attention to those Super Tuesday results on Twitter. He's been offering his assessment of the race and debate performances and wrote earlier this week, just give me an opponent. 
Well, we have some new numbers on a possible opponent. Thursday, the latest Fox News poll was released. It shows nationally Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has vaulted to the top spot among likely Democratic primary voters. But as previous samples have also shown, all six Democrats tested are all beating President Trump if the election were held today. Both Mike Bloomberg and Joe Biden are eight-point favorites. Sanders is a seven-point favorite in the poll. Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar have smaller leads, all within the margin of error. Still a majority, 56 percent, believe President Trump will be reelected. Tommy Hicks Jr. thinks so, too. He's the co-chair of the Republican National Committee. I asked him about the president's reelection strategy. He's been all over the place, and I admire him for uh, his work ethic, for sure, and it's tough to keep up with him. But I got to tell you, um, you know, he's got a great story to tell about his long list of accomplishments, and I think it's important for the people in each state uh, that's having a primary to, to to hear straight from the man himself what uh, how great how much better off the American people are today than they were four years ago. Do you think that's uh, I mean you look at some of the recent polling samples you look at the approval rating the president remains underwater uh, in, in most of these uh, polls or the, these uh, performance polls that we've seen job approval numbers that we've seen. Uh, and just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen, you know, the top uh, Democrats all beat the president in these hypothetical head to heads, not just nationally, but in some of these swing states like Colorado and Maine and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. What's your what's your explanation for that? Well, I also saw a poll today that uh, I think it was Rasmussen that uh, the president had a 52 percent approval rating, which is uh, you know way higher than everybody else. But most importantly, 61 percent of the American people think that they are better off today than they were four years ago. And I think that's that's what matters most. I think we learned that in 1980 with uh, Reagan uh, running against Carter. And we've been tracking that uh, in every single um, presidential race since. What's the disconnect then? Why, how, how can one number be up in the 60s and, and then the president, say for that Rasmussen poll, not being able to crack that 50 percent number? You know, I, I don't think it really matters. Look at the president's uh, track record. You have seven million new jobs. Wages are rising across the board. Uh, you know, 200 uh, confirmed judges. The American people are thrilled with what this president's been able to accomplish. And I think if you look at the other side, quite honestly, and it started last night, uh, there's a stark contrast between this president and what the uh, other side's going to bring out in, uh, in November. And I think that's going to pay off handsomely for the president and the American people and also the House, where we're going to retake the House. I saw the president tweeting that he's ready to, to find out who his Democratic opponent will be. I was surprised that, that the president isn't more eager to let the Democrats play some bumper cars for a little longer. Well, the president always uh, likes to be working and, uh, you know, have known him for quite some time. And, uh, you know, he is the most active person you could ever imagine. Uh, he's, he's extremely smart, like literally a mile wide and a mile deep. And, uh, you know, He's always ready for the next thing to start. He wakes up every single morning and says, what can I do today to you know, keep America great, I guess, now? The um, enthusiasm is something that, that we've been following a lot, too. And, and there seems to be at least, uh, if you look at the 2018 midterms, you look at some of the, these recent fundraising numbers from these Democratic candidates, an awful lot of enthusiasm on that side of the aisle. Um, you now have the uh, the the entrance in this race of, of Michael Bloomberg, who has spent just an unprecedented uh, amount of money um, in in television ads over the last uh, several weeks. Many of them uh, about President Trump. Uh, what are you guys doing 
And listen, I know that the, that the RNC has raised an awful lot of money as well, almost half a billion dollars last year. Um, how do you keep that up? How do you sustain those types of fundraising figures, given the, the war chest that it appears Democrats are now going to have, not just from these individual candidates, but uh, you've heard the commitment now from, from Bloomberg and others about what they're prepared to spend, whether they're the nominee or not. Well, I, mean, I think you saw last night Bloomberg had a little Freudian slip where he said he bought the uh, midterms for the Democrats. Uh, you can't buy the presidency. You know, the American people are much smarter than that. Uh, the president was outspent by Hillary uh, by a wide margin in 2016, and the American people saw right through uh, her message and saw how positive what he was going to do would be for our country. And now he has the track record to to get behind. And I think that's been highly, highly energizing for the grassroots um, that that we've engaged with. We already have half a million volunteers across the country that are trained and ready to go. We've already knocked on a million doors. And this is eight months out uh, from the election. The enthusiasm um, in the grassroots and in the donor community on our side is tremendous. And we've raised record record amounts of money as well. I know you've followed politics a, a long time. You've been involved in professional politics for a long time. What's your expectation on Super Tuesday? I think it'll be interesting, uh, especially <laughs> after last night. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, Texas... Uh, you know, Bernie drew a great crowd in, in Texas. And, you know, at least, you know, there's one good thing about Bernie. He's he's honest. He's telling the world that he's socialist. The other the other candidates out there have not uh, quite seen the uh, ability to admit that yet, even though they all embrace the same policies. Do you worry about a Bernie Sanders nomination? I'm not worried about uh, the nomination of anybody. I think, you know, again, to contrast what they believe in, what the president's track record is, I think, uh, you know, 7 million new jobs, record low unemployment, rising wages, 200 judges confirmed. Uh, I think the uh, the American people are going to be pretty happy with that track record. What needs to be a priority legislatively for Republicans as we talk about not just the presidency, but the House, the Senate on the line as well? Um, is it important to, to try and get through health care legislation? Is it important to, to get through prescription drug legislation, infrastructure? What, what, what is the, the, the issue that you would like to see, that the party wants to see uh, Congress get done in what is an election year and historically difficult to get big projects done? Well, unfortunately, the Democrats have been obstructionists uh, and, you know, for the past you know, year, well, year and a the, few. The House has sent the Senate a, a prescription drug plan. Yes, they they have, but it, it wasn't that that was not a bipartisan plan, and it was it was definitely not something that that was palatable. Um, and I think I think you, you're seeing you know total gridlock in Washington until the election. I think I think uh, the Democrats have chosen not to work with the president, and you know at this point we're going to have to unfortunately wait for a lot of things until after uh, November 3rd. Is that difficult to, to run on, to wait? No, not at all, not at all. I think, uh, I think, I think we've got the right platform going into 20, uh, 2020, and we're going to have a, a, a win in the House, and we're going to have a great first 100 days of the, of the next administration of Donald J. Trump. Let me finish with this. I want to focus on a couple of these Senate seats. You have contested uh, Republican-held seats in Colorado, in Arizona, in North Carolina, in Maine. Uh, in a lot of these states, some voters and some of these senators, Susan Collins, for instance, has tried to 
show some independence from the president. What is the RNC's view on, on that strategy? Is this sort of an all-in on the president, or are you encouraging uh, these Republicans, uh, the, these endangered Republicans, vulnerable Republicans, to, to run their own races? Well, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to build our many-million-person army without the president's energy. And we'll have 8.8 million people who didn't show up in, uh, in uh, 2018 from 2016 show up in 2020, and hopefully that number grows. We've got uh, Susan Collins, whose numbers actually look better than they have in a long time uh, in that state. You've got Corey. You know, he, he's, a, he's got a great track record. He's a terrific uh, candidate. Uh, Colorado's a little tough. Uh, but Arizona, we're going to do well there. Uh, Alabama, we should pick one up. And I believe um, John James in Michigan should be one we could, we could pick up as well. So, you know, we're confident in the map. We're confident in the, in the Senate. We're confident in the House. Tommy, I appreciate the, uh, the insight, the, the, the chat. We'll, uh, we'll get together soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That will do it for the From Washington podcast this week. Next week, as we mentioned, a super Tuesday could separate Democratic frontrunner Bernie Sanders from the rest of the pack, or it could provide the delegates Joe Biden needs to return to his frontrunner position or push another candidate to the front of the pack. It'll be our first look at the strength of former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg after the billionaire set out the first four contests. In all, hundreds of delegates will be allocated. We will, of course, break it all down and see if there's any new clarity in this crowded field. Congress, meantime, has a fast-approaching FISA deadline. Provisions of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act expire in mid-March. Both Republicans and Democrats are demanding reforms. National security officials want a clean renewal. We will look at that debate. Until then, thanks so much for listening. For all of us at Fox News Radio, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.